HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for PASA's 2024 conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Don't miss over 70 educational sessions on farming and food systems, plus an expansive trade show. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. This is Capri Cafaro, host of Eat Your Heartland Out. This week, I will introduce you to two women with a connection to the Midwest. Both are blazing a trail in food and drink in their own unique way. Mary Pelletieri, founder of Top Note Tonic, tells me about her journey from brewing beer to founding her own craft tonic and soda company. And then Elizabeth Poet discusses how her life on a cattle ranch inspired her to author a new cookbook. Mary, thank you for taking the time to join Eat Your Heartland Out. Thank you all for having me. I'm very excited to do this interview. Well, you have quite a storied career and one that is pretty unique. Um, you know, we don't hear often um, about, um, you know, women uh, in brewing, women maybe making their own, their own tonics as you're doing now, um, particularly, I think, when you originally started your career. So let's go back. Once upon a time, Mary was interested in brewing. Go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I'm one of these um, unusual creative people that found myself in science years ago um, and just found the problem solving and the world of science more interesting than my ability to draw. Um, but it, of course, um, because I was such a nerd of food and beverage, I found myself creating quite a bit. Um, and long ago, I used to create... Um, uh, my own homebrew in my basement. And that was something that kind of spurred me into the world of brewing as a professional. Um, it took probably about five years before I got my first job. And then another three years after that, all the time going to uh, college and, and um, graduate school. And I found myself at Goose Island Beer and uh, was the quality manager there as well as the director of um, R&D. So I've long been kind of dabbling in food and beverage all my life, um, but I, I found myself more attracted to beverage and the categories of, of, of beverage, wine, beer, alcohol, um, mm -hmm. spirits, and non-alcohol for that matter. Um, non-alcoholic drinks were always an uh, interest to me. When I was pregnant with my first son at Goose Island. Um, I couldn't tell anyone, of course, those first few months. And of course, you have still have to go to the bars. <laughs> and I found myself, I found myself very frustrated with the non-alcoholic selections. Um, you know, the most standard bars. It's it was at least back then, twenty years ago, um, a bit of the. This isn't very important. We're we're just going to hide this kind of behind the soda gun and no one will really know what it is. And I found myself ordering tonic water um, just because it was slightly bitter and it had more of adult flavor. But I, when I looked at, you know, the ingredients and the calories and everything, I thought, well, geez, tonic water isn't necessarily a healthy drink, 
but someone should face that someday. You know, (laughs) I thought of it that moment. um, And it's that conversation in my head has never left me. And, um, you know, I continued my career in beer. I worked for Miller Coors for some time. I moved to Milwaukee and found myself just wanting that entrepreneurial kind of spark again. I had spent so much time with great craft brewers across the country when I was at Goose Island and just really was inspired by their stories and thought, I, you know, I really kind of want this tonic water thing to happen. And at the time, people were starting to make tonic waters as syrups and you started seeing those in bars yeah. and restaurants. So it was it was a good time to kind of jump and try to do it myself. And we did. We started as farm, um, basically in farmer's markets Mm. cocktail syrups, really tonic syrups in various formats and getting good consumer feedback, you know, right here in the Midwest of Milwaukee. And uh, we kind of from there decided to launch Top Note as a sparkling beverage. And I, I mean, you've really summed it up. I mean, you, you, you know, usually if you ask, ask the question, once upon a time, go, People just go all over the place. You were succinct and, and really <laughs> gave me the, the 30,000 foot level. I mean, uh, and what a what a storied career, as I said, it, that it's been. And I think you, you've touched on something I think really important and one that, I, you know, you've obviously were ahead of the curve on, too, because now we, there is this real interest and in no and low alcohol drinks, um, you know, uh, alcohol free cocktails. Um, there's, there's, this is a massive trend. Um, and, and it really is emerged, I think, even more so post pandemic. Um, how have you seen the interest in your tonic beverages maybe evolve since you started? Yeah, good question. Yeah. Um, I just heard a stat this morning, one of seven drinks served in the bars and restaurants, one of seven is going to be non-alcoholic. Um, which, uh, you know, instead of ordering a cocktail or wine or beer, people are choosing to order something that's non-alcoholic in terms of a, a mixed drink. And it has challenged bartenders coming out of COVID. I think it was starting pre-COVID, but the health and wellness kind of movement that um, the pandemic inspired certainly helped to create more demand. And bartenders, I think themselves, you know, starting to drink less. Um, I think that yeah. also began to happen because COVID gave us way too much time on our hands um, right. um, in a good and a bad way. So mm-hmm. I do think there's some, uh, there was some opportunity that really was driven because of the pandemic. And concurrently, you have Gen Z coming to drinking age. And Gen Z, I have two Gen Zers at home. Um, neither of them are officially of drinking age, but they, um, they don't really imbibe <laughs> and they've mm-hmm. been around alcohol of all of their, you know, young lives. Um, Makes really, sense. I was making beer. I had Goose Island at home from a very, you know, from their very young age. Um, you know, my current partner sells wine and we have wine, um, you know, open bottles nearly every night. They just aren't that interested. Um, and that's, you know, I remember being that age and being a little interested, you know, I wasn't a huge drinker, but I, I remember being interested and certainly the stats are supporting my personal experience at home with what we're seeing from Gen Z. They just, they're finding, um, other alternatives, we'll just say, uh, but they're also just not, they're, they're not that interested in being, out of control. From my mm. understanding, Gen Z has a um, almost social phobia um, because of these phones, <laughs> these devices that we have in our hands all the time. Fair enough. And you know they have captured much of their lives, um, say on on in social. So you know you've got that as well. So I think there's there's a combination of health, wellness, Gen Zers for their various reasons, not really wanting to imbibe terribly heavy. So you have these kind of zebra opportunities. Um, And I don't think it's just Gen Z. I think you see millennials as, uh, and for different reasons, as well as as Gen Xers um, and even baby boomers choosing to drink um, a sober drink occasionally or stay sober all night um, because they have a big presentation the next day or they need to, you know, 
uh, they want to get up and run, you know, for whatever right. reason. They're they're all there's there's multiple generations and multiple reasons there, but there's there's truly movement, and that yeah, has changed. Um, you know, your question was what has changed. Well, that was that that is it. There's this trend, and uh, the trend is driving folks to choose to look at what they're mixing specifically with. And frankly, the large CPG brands that take 40 feet up in the in the grocery stores aren't necessarily cutting it for what people want to mix and make something that's uh, uh, alcohol-like or maybe a replacement for, for a moment of the day in which they normally slowed down and right. thought about what they were sipping. So that, that seems to be the key driver is people really want to still think about flavor. They still are seeking that adult beverage of time and space and flavor. And uh, that's, you know, that's, that's where mixers and really high quality tonic waters as well as mixers come into play. So that's, I, that's so, so very well said. I mean, I think that you brought up so many really important points just just in what you're saying that you know you have multiple generations for their own variety of reasons um looking to uh, indulge less in alcohol looking for these no and low options so to speak um but they still want that sort of calgon take me away moment i'm dating myself um but <laughs> you, you know <laughs> but you know what i mean right it's you know you as you were just saying you they they want that time and space um you know to have that kind of you know your happy hour your moment where you kind of unwind um but maybe they don't necessarily want that the effects of alcohol so they're looking for something that is quality um and um and that is obviously where you come in and i can imagine that um, there's a lot of work and research that, that goes into making this kind of a quality product. You said at the beginning of our conversation that you're somebody that was interested in science and then kind of got into brewing and all the rest of this and uh, were applying some of those skills to this industry. Uh, how has, uh, you know, kind of the laboratory, if you will, mm-hmm. um, played into how you develop your formulas? Because that's really what they are. Yeah, it plays it plays a big role. Um, beverage companies, uh, there's there are lots of hurdles, obviously, to get started. But one of the hurdles that you would think most beverage brands would have to deal with is formulation, and some just farm it out. Um, they can, they can hire an R and D firm, or more often they just hire a flavor company to do the formulation for them. Um, we, at the start, had our syrups that we were hand-making from herbs, you know, and juices oh, wow. and and different types of sugars and acids. And we passed those formulas onto an R&D company and said, help us design these into ready-to-serve, um, you know, hmm. soft drinks. So they gave us kind of the basic blocking and tackling. And after that, we've always created our own formulas um, it comes with obviously with some risk because it's just me, my co-founder, who also was a home brewer. Um, we have um, now years and years of beverage experience. Um, I think it's going on forty between the two of us. But that's um, you know that's still you you always um, take on a little bit of risk when you start your own company. So of course. It, because we have a tiny company and we're, we're kind of reliant on our own palates. We start and sometimes we tweak um, flavors to get them, hit them right. Uh, but that's, that's, you know, yes, it's a formulation. It's, it still requires multiple testings. I've, I've, you know, I remember when we were kind of reformulating our ginger beer because we didn't like how it was um, um, the shelf stability in the bottle at the initial stages. So we, pulled out all the different flavors and we had like 50 bottles on the shelf of different things that we were testing. Um, honestly, not a lot of companies have founders that are that caring about what they're putting in the bottle. They care, of course, but they're, you know, they're not, they're not in the weeds like we are. Um, right. And, and I would assume that you're in the weeds, you know, partially, if not only because you come from a craft brew background, you yes. brew your own beer, you have, you know, gone and 
literally taught and written books on the process, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm still a quality manager at heart, you know, and that's very hard to leave. Once you're in that field, uh, you pretty much demand quality. So I'm, I'm of the mindset that I can do this the best for my company right now. Eventually, um, we'll, you know, bring someone in that can help support my founder, my co-founder and I. Um, but for now, it's it's us doing most of the work. We may vet now the, the formulas with um, either other scientists or our, our, even our flavor houses. We actually have passed on our formulas to the flavor companies that we mostly serve our, our products with and say, you know, would you would you adjust anything but we're doing most of the work so it just it stands out you'll taste top note and you'll say wow not only are every sing, single product different um they're distinct they are all super balanced and super well constructed and super well thought out uh because we have put ourselves in the you know in, in the in the seat of the consumer um at, during that whole process so right. And you've been doing this, you've been doing Top Note for 10 years, right? Yeah, now a decade, which is shocking to think. Um, we've we've been making syrups at least since back to 2013. Um, we, we, we've been in the ready-to-serve format since 20, late 2017, so 2018, 2019, we really got our mm-hmm. start. And then, of course, kind of COVID changed our world again. <laughs> of course, of course. Now, l- let me ask this. I mean, we, we had the conversation about no and low, um, but, you know, uh, tonics and, um, you know, uh, sodas and those sort of things are obviously used as mixers. Um, do you formulate or pair certain of your products, you know, more so with um, alcohol than others that might be maybe more crafted towards doing a non-alcoholic cocktail? So we are... I like to say we're Switzerland. We are non-denominational. <laughs> we can mix with just about anything that you might want to mix with. If it's just juice and a shrub, fantastic. Um, if you have a, 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 a non-alcoholic spirit that um, you, you paid 40 bucks for the bottle and you want to just have a really high quality drink, pick up a top note. We will not overwhelm anything. And then, of course... Same thing with your spirits. You don't want to pollute anything that you buy. If you're buying a high quality, you know, tequila or gin, you should buy a nice mixer. And Top Note, um, we've we like to say, is one of the best in the market. Um, we did just win some. Um, uh, you know, we're always kind of astounded when we win awards. <laughs> Um, but the one that I'm most proud of, we just won this pat this year in 23. The um, we won a double gold in San Francisco, which is a, that's tasting, a big yeah. The tasting alliance is kind of yeah. the big one, um, yeah. and a double gold means that every single judge gave you a gold. And if you know the judges that go to this this particular panel, they are some of the most critical bartenders, psalms, um, beverage managers in the in kind of the country, if not the world. So it meant a lot to double gold. Um, you know, a, a very kind of minor category a classic tonic water but we're the only ones that have done it so we we love to um be in this space that's kind of sometimes overlooked but now like we said at the beginning of the show bars and restaurants are no longer overlooking and i do believe that's that's transpiring in consumers and in the kitchens of of america as well yeah People want to serve something special not only for themselves but for their guests and, um, you know, tonic water, if it's made right, can be that replacement beverage or be part of your replacement story or just a part of your alcohol, um, you know, serving better. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously very, very versatile. Uh, you, you have, you know, the classic tonic. I think you mentioned ginger beer. What else is, is in your repertoire? Yeah, we've got... Um, Three tonic waters, our classic tonic water, which I mentioned is kind of a your classic quinine and lime. It's um, you know, what you would mix with gin or vodka or again, some people love it on its own. Um, 
we have two other tonic waters that support that. They were actually our original launches. They are, um, they're more on that European softer side, almost like a bitters and soda, Mm -hmm. our Indian tonic water, which is much lower in sugar and our bitter lemon. And then um, we have a ginger beer, a grapefruit soda, and a club soda that rounds out the portfolio. It's a pretty standard portfolio, the bitter mm-hmm. lemon and the Indian tonic being our uh, unique spins on the on the set. Um, but we're not just, I like to say, we're not just quinine water with some flavor, which I think some of some others in the category have, have kind of just done that. Um, and every single, every single product we make has a place in a, in a space, even our club soda, which we designed specifically to mix with uh, brown spirits. Mm-hmm. The, um, Interesting. We, we looked at club soda from a brewer's perspective. I put my brewer's chemistry hat on and said, let's mix some unique minerals in this um, that can we lower the sodium content because sodium mm. can really, honestly, people don't really look at sodium in their club, but it'll make your it can make your drink actually taste salty and that's okay for some bitter drinks. Maybe you might want to have a little saline, but everything else, you know, citrus forward, malt forward drinks, you don't necessarily want the sodium. So we have a little in ours, but we used other salts and the, and, you know, magnesium and potassium and these things really brighten flavor. And that, um, that's just a, you know, a hack. It's a chemistry hack. What you're saying here is that, you know, mixology and, you know, what you're doing uh, in the, the tonic lab, it could just be STEM, right? It's a STEM class. Yes. Well, you know, that's, I think it's a very practical um, science, right? We, we, there's no getting around the fact that food and beverage is, you know, intertwined in our culture and in our lives. Absolutely. And, uh, the, you know, it, it's so, so when you start layering in science and how, why things are the way they are, and if you're a curious scientific brain, you want to learn more. You know, my, my background was botany. I think I might've mentioned that to you pre. That's pre- right. Episode, but- which makes it, which does make a lot of sense. I can yeah. see the applicability. Yeah. Um, but tell me in your own words, I mean, how you feel, you know, your botany background has manifested itself in the work that you do now. Well, but tonics are truly just botanical drinks. Um, Actually, Mm -hmm. all soft drinks are. If you go way back in the, you know, historical context of even Coca-Cola, you'll find it was truly a botanical drink. Of course, it had some unique (laughs) new properties. That we can't Indeed, use anymore. Back then, back then, um, and right? Today. Um, but it, it was this, you know, tonic tincture. Um, these things that toned the body. These were things that you would go to us. Um, uh, you could even, you know, get at a pharmacy, and th- that kind of pharmaceutical desire to make something tasty as well as get your medicine just translated into soft drinks as we, as, as, um, as things progressed. Um, obviously those soft drinks aren't necessarily, um, they kind of became less and less healthy. Um, you know, less about the herbs and the spices and more about, um, kind of refreshment, I suppose. Um, but all in that's, you know, tonic is, you know, go back to the, the, foundation and it's a botanical soft drink and that's probably what drew, drove me to to it anyway the start that that makes a, a lot of sense i do want to actually go back um and touch a, a little bit on your your brewing career um just because i think it is so unique for when you started um, I would anticipate there weren't a lot of women in the industry. That's just that's just a hunch. That's just a you know a gross generalization and assumption. But would love to just get a little bit of your take uh, on you know um, breaking some glass ceilings uh, in the world of, of beer and brewing and now tonic. Yeah, sure. You know, I was twenty three when I started at Siebel Institute, and there were there were women there. Um, my boss actually was, um, a German, um, lady that came from Labatt. Um, so there were some women obviously in the brewing industry. Um, I look And tell folks what Siebel is about for those who are not familiar. Yes. So Siebel Institute, um, 
the brewers out there will likely know what it is, but it is a um, it's one of the oldest schools in America, if I think the oldest, that um, teaches you how to make beer. Um, they've taught every um, from the turn of the century, eighteen, I think nineties, all the way through prohibition, all the way till still to today, they are still teaching brewers, and you know an amazing kind of trek of any business. But I remember walking the halls of Siebel and just seeing, you know, the the faces on the wall. They literally had basically almost like a a yearbook <laughs> on the wall of all the folks that have trans, you know, went through their their training, and it, it had all the famous names: Bush, you know, Stroh, Miller. Everyone was right. There. Um, of course, you had to kind of look hard to start seeing the women. <laughs> sure, and they started showing up. But it was an international school. So interestingly, we had women from South America. We had women from, um, you know, Europe starting to go through Siebel. And then there were, of course, American women. And the the craft beer business in in the U.S. started out very male heavy. Um, The women in the the category were mostly in the laboratory, like I was. There were a few Maverick Brewers out there. Um, Jen Talley, I'm talking to you from Squatters. She was um, someone I looked up to because she was, you know, lifting the 50-pound bags of malt and um, moving everything around and, and you know, throwing all the valves. Um, but, but you know, I, I knew the process, obviously. I knew the quality requirements. And right. I, I walked the floor everywhere from, you know, the, the final product in, in the warehouse, back to packaging, to the filler, to the keg, um, you know, filler, to seller, all the way up to brewing back in the lab. So I had to know the whole process. Um, and it was great training ground, something I, I, bet. I, I, look, um, I look fondly upon those days. Yeah. And I bet you have a, a lot to teach others. Um, you know, I know that, you know, you obviously spent time teaching, but um, as a as an entrepreneur now um, and as a female entrepreneur, um, are you doing any mentoring um, in your busy schedule at yeah. all? Or do people approach you? I, people do approach me for mentoring and I uh, am open to mentoring the, um, the woman right now that is actually president of the Master Brewers Association of America, uh, Lauren Torres. She told me that I was her mentor, even though I um, I wasn't actively talking with her on a weekly basis or anything, but that was so kind of her to say. And I, she, you know, she was just, um, that was such a wonderful thing um, to hear. The Master Brewers Association is one of the older, um, used to be male dominated, associations over over brewing and it's kind of the technical um arm of it so it's it's nice to see women when they are able to shine as presidents there um but yeah that the, i do mentor occasionally um but i'm i'm still seeking to be mentored <laughs> i understand that i think it's important to do all three in your life um and sometimes concurrently um, which brings me to, I think, a, a great place to, to kind of wrap up our conversation, which is what advice would you give folks that are looking to get into this industry? Um, you know, whether it's tonics, whether it's beer, um, you know, what would you say to folks, um, anyone that might be listening that says, you know, uh, I'd like to try my hand at this. Um, and um, maybe they have a background, maybe they want to learn. What, what kind of tips would you give? Well, yeah, quality first. Um, it has to, you have to understand your product, understand not just how to make it taste really good and, and, and it interact with, you know, it, it, it maybe appeals to a multitude of people, um, but then um, how to, to make sure that it, it's not going to fall apart in the bottle or um, you know, the route to market becomes then the next challenge. And then the last big challenge becomes, um, you know, uh, besides sales and marketing is, is funding it. Um, that becomes, a, you know, w- women in entrepreneurial positions or own, owning their own companies many times have the biggest challenge there. Uh, they can have amazing ideas, an amazing group of people that are working with them, but they don't necessarily get funded. 
Um, and it's an unfortunate mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, no, that's, that's always, uh, some of the realities of business are very, very difficult. It takes a lot of work, uh, a lot of guts, a lot of luck, uh, you know, quality product, quality ingredients. Uh, sounds like you have all the above in spades. Uh, and we just can't wait to see um, what more Top Note does out there in the world. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm always excited for um, talking with new audiences and, and introducing our story to them and, and hopefully getting Top Note in, their, in your hands and, and others um, that are listening. So yeah, for sure. And, and how can they do that? I'm not going to let you go until you tell us. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, we are online under topnotonic.com. You can order direct. And we are in some great retailers like Whole Foods um, in the Midwest. So we are in the Midwest Whole Foods markets um, from Ohio all the way up through Illinois and Wisconsin. So Great. It sounds like easy to find and uh, wonderful timing um, as this uh, episode is going to come out kind of right around the holiday season. And of course, uh, ringing in the new year, if you want to, you know, have a new year's resolution and do more, uh, you know, alcohol-free drinks, it's a good opportunity there too. So really, Mary, thank you very much for taking the time and uh, telling us about your journey today. Thank you so much, Capri, for having me. We are um, always happy to introduce um, the world of botany and the world of mixology to new drinkers. So best of luck (laughs) and happy new year to you, by the way. Same, Same to you. Take care. After the break, I'll welcome another powerhouse woman, this time from the ag and food sector. Meet rancher Elizabeth Poet. Want to cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower? Register now for PASA's 2024 Sustainable Agriculture Conference. Discover resources, services, and products at our expansive trade show and explore more than 70 educational sessions on climate smart practices, food justice, soil health, and more. Featuring a dynamic lineup of speakers, including Reginaldo Hasle Marroquin, farmer and founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and CEO of Tree Range Farms, and Reverend Dr. Heber M. Brown III, pastor, community organizer, and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. Find your community at PASA's 33rd Annual Conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 10th. Register now at pasafarming.org HRN 2024. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash HRN 2024. Elizabeth, welcome to Eat Your Heartland Down. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are excited and you are a unique guest because you have your foot in a number of different camps. Um, you have some connection to the Midwest, but you are a, a native of California, right? This is true. I, I, my, I'm from California, born and raised here, but spent a lot of time in the Midwest. So I have a lot of my heart there as well. I, I bet it's so hard to, you know, it's like, I know people leave their heart in San Francisco, but a lot mm-hmm. of people have to leave their heart in the Midwest because we are just so warm and welcoming. Um, and I know you had some really positive experiences going to Kenyon in my home state of Ohio and growing up as a, you know, as part of a ranching family. Um, it's my understanding you also went out um, to, um, you know, go to cattle auctions and places like Kansas and Nebraska, right? Absolutely. I spent a lot of time. Um, one of the things I think when I was first looking at colleges, I, I did look at the Midwest and I think my dad was just overjoyed because he was like, great, I can go to, you know, cattle farms and visit and get some bulls and see my daughter. So uh, when I chose to go to college, (laughs) when I chose to go to college in Ohio, he was uh, very happy, but um, truly I had um, such a wonderful time there. And yeah, we've, we've been to Nebraska and Kansas and Ohio and um, Montana. I mean, all of these places, but um, there's just some amazing things happening. And um, it's been really great to be able to really kind of see the Midwest in all different ways. I I bet. And, uh, you know, your story is so interesting and unique because, you know, you grew up with, you're what, a seventh generation rancher. I am. Yes. We've had this cattle ranch for um, seven generations. Um, it was, um, so it's, it's been, a, it's been in our family for a really long time. Um, and we've been raising cattle here for, um, for all of that time. So, um, it's been a, it, it's a really special place. The ranch is 14,000 acres. We're in wow. Santa Barbara County, um, which is kind of near the coast. Um, so we call it kind of the central coast of California. 
Um, it's a beautiful spot, um, but you know, it it really is working the land every single day. And I bet you know, yeah, it's 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 a beautiful spot. Well, you know, a number of our listeners, particularly on, on Sirius XM, you know, are, um, you know, they're active farmers and ranchers themselves. So I know that our listeners really have a, a great understanding and respect for what it takes to um, do the work that you do day in and day out. But for some of our listeners that might be on podcast or just flipping through, maybe they're not as familiar. Give us a little bit of a day to day of what it was like, first off, growing up on a ranch. Well, I think that growing up on a ranch is such a special thing. And to be honest, I don't think I really saw it as that special when I was young. (laughs) I just thought, oh, this is what happens. (laughs) Um, But, you know, after going out in the world and kind of figuring out where I wanted to raise my kids, this was definitely the spot where I wanted to kind of come back to. Um, it's, you know, I was the girl with, um, tutu and cowboy boots and scratches on my knees as I climbed all the trees and fed cows on the back of my dad's pickup truck. And, um, it was definitely, um, an amazing place to grow up and just be like, you know, just be a kid, you know, to be honest. And that's kind of what I have always loved about being able to raise my boys here. Just, you know, they, they can, you know, they know how to drive a pickup truck and they know how to drive a tractor (laughs) and they're, they're pretty young to know that. Sure. I mean, and that's, that's part of that kind of intergenerational and multi-generational farming and ranching lifestyle. What about what you learned um, about, you know, kind of respecting where your food comes from growing up on a ranch? Yeah. One of the things um, my dad started doing was he was really interested in um, beef and being able to grow our own beef. Um, And he started doing that back in the late 80s. Um, He was one of the first organic beef uh, ranchers in in California. Yeah. And and I was lucky enough at one point to go to uh, a market with him and um, we did burgers. We, we, We like flipped burgers and people came up. And that was actually, I think, my first real experience to really understand um, that connection to food because so many people came up to us and really wanted that connection. Like, oh my goodness, you know, we are the ranchers. We can actually talk about the cattle that we grow, the land that we grow them on. And, um, and I think I was about nine years old and I was that girl with the little, um, you know, calculator, (laughs) figuring out how much things each, um, people, each person, um, paid to get their burger. And, um, and I think for me, that was, um, a real eye opening experience of, of really talking to people and seeing that connection. Yeah, no, I, that has to have a huge impact on a little kid to, you know, kind of see that entire cycle go, you know, from, you know, being on the ranch and, growing, raising that cattle and then bringing it to market, literally, mm-hmm. uh, selling, selling burgers. Um, yeah. I, 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 you know, I want to know a little bit more about your, your farming practices. You, you mentioned your dad was one of the first organic, um, you know, beef growers in California. Um, are you still, uh, adhering to organic yeah. practices today? Um, yeah, we basically, um, we are not certified organic now. Um, I think what we really wanted to do was almost go beyond that and try to see what Mm -hmm. is best for, um, our land and what is best for the environment and what's best for the ranch and the animals. And so, sure. What does um, that look like? It, it looks like a lot of work, (laughs) to be (laughs) honest. (laughs) Um, but it is, um, you know, we do a rotational grazing here in California. I mean, you guys get so much more rain than we do. We would love some more Mm -hmm. rain, but, um, we have to have larger, we have larger pastures, less cattle. Um, so we do a lot of rotational grazing. Um, we are, um, doing, crops on the ranch. Um, we try to not ship in as much, um, you know, right now, like where are we getting hay from? We try to, we try to do as much as we can on the ranch here. Um, and then also I'm, and then selling beef at farmer's markets. I'm, I'm still doing that, um, kind of on and off more seasonally now, just because Mm -hmm. it's just been kind of a whirlwind of, with work, but, um, yeah, it, it's Which just, we're going we're gonna to talk about too. We're going to talk about <laughs> some of the other things, very important things you're doing too. Yeah. But to me, this was, um, this has been a place that I've always wanted to come back. I've always had a real connection and that's really my, my, I think I came back to the ranch and really wanted to figure out where 
where did I fit in? Where did I want to mm-hmm. really, really make my place here on the ranch? You know, there's been generations. And so with family ranches, it can kind of become, you know, you're just doing what your dad did or your mom did or, you know, and for me, I really wanted to kind of step it up and try to do my own thing. Um, my dad had stopped selling beef. He was just like, it was a whole other business. And for him, he wanted to really focus on the cattle, which is why we ended up bringing in cattle, uh, bulls from, you know, from the Midwest, um, and really wanted to bring in great genetics here. Um, and so we did that over time and he was really just focused on the cattle. So I wanted to really focus in on the food and that connection. And so Mm -hmm. I started doing farmer's markets and, um, kind of grew from there. And and you have indeed grown. Um, first, before I want to I want to talk to you about all of the incredible projects that you have on, but I definitely want to ask about whether or not you you know as as, as a woman you know uh, in in ranching, do you find that you are unique, or are you seeing more women take over their family businesses or even start their own ranching um, in the twenty first century? Well, to be honest, I mean, all these ranches have had babies over these years. And <laughs> so right. I, I feel like women have really um, been a huge part of the ranching community for a very long time. I mm-hmm. do think that um, we are taking more of a lead role here. Um I think in many, in many ranches. Um, but I do think that um, being able to work together and being able to ranch, uh, the, the, the beauty of ranching. And one of the things that I've always loved about it is, and, and farming, you know, very similar is that it really can be a family business. It really can yeah. be a place where you can work with your family, um, and really create something that's, um, that's that that you can really share with the world or the country or your community. Um, and so for me, that is something that has really, um, been an interest to me. It's something that I Mm -hmm. love to do. Um, I work with my husband, um, we run cattle together. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a really important, um, and new and very unique experience. I bet. I bet. And and you are making your own mark, as you said, and you are doing a number of things. Where do you want to start? I, I know that you, at least I believe you, have kind of engaged in some agritourism. Yes. Right? Yeah, definitely. So, so let's, I was, let's start there. Okay. So I was um, going to a ton of farmer's markets, um, uh, bringing beef, you know, to to um, up and down California. And I really noticed that there was a real interest. Um, I was one of the first beef purveyors uh, at a lot of these markets. Mm. And what I really, really noticed first and foremost was that people wanted that connection. People wanted to come and see the ranch. And for me, I thought to myself, well, we could just have a tour or some that people come out. But I wanted it more because I really wanted it to really feel like people were a part um, I, I think that places that have these big histories, um, like this ranch does, or even if it has just a, it's just beginning its, you know, story, um, people want to be a part of that. And so for me, I wanted to bring out people to the ranch, have a connection to the history, have a connection to the land, and then have an amazing meal afterward. Because to me, that's what it's all about. That's the joy. That's the fun part. That's, that's when we get to celebrate. So, Um, I started having these events, um, at the ranch and they've been, uh, um, amazing. I, I, you know, had my best friend, um, from, from forever and ever, um, come and help me at these events. And we did strawberries. We had people have pick strawberries and then make strawberry jam and then sit under the arbor. That was one of our first, um, events. Um, Amazing. And have like strawberry, um, I think we had strawberry shortcakes and tea. (laughs) It was, it was, it was very, um, very simple. Um, but to me, that was the connection. That was how people were going to hopefully start really learning about how much work it takes, but how Mm -hmm. much joy it really is. Um, so then it just really grew from there. And we started having all of these events and people are coming now from all over the country to come to these events. We do a history and then 
usually sit our, you know, under this long table and get people together and have some good food. I, it definitely sounds like something I would want to do. And that's <laughs> the kind of things that I am always, uh, you know, I think uh, gravitating towards when I'm looking for something to do and, um, you know, you want to learn, you want to have a kind of, you know, a little bit of an experience, get your hands dirty a little bit, and then have some great food. Um, but now, you know, you're, you're kind of sharing your experience with people that might not ever be able to get to California through, through the media and now yeah. through your first cookbook. So yeah. tell me a little bit about your show yeah. and what you're doing there. And then I want to talk all about your cookbook. Yep. So the show um, is called Ranch to Table and it's on Magnolia. It's streaming on HBO. Um, it was, you know, it, it, it really was a surprise opportunity um, <laughs> completely. Um, I, I wasn't quite sure about it in the beginning um, because I really wanted to show what ranching really is and not make it so... Um, don't know the right way to say it, but I, I, I want to made for TV. Or, yeah. Made for TV or quirky or, you know, like, yeah. um, I, I'm a girl who loves plaid, but I was nervous that it would be all plaid. And <laughs> I don't know, like right. I just, um, I just wanted it to be something that was true to what people are doing all across the United States and what um, people in agriculture are, are doing. And it's very, you know, it's a lot of work. Um, and so I wanted to do that and I wanted to focus on food. So I kind of shared with them, you know, what, um, I was interested in and, you know, Chip and Joe were so wonderful and just really, this is what they wanted to share. And so it's been an amazing experience, um, being able to kind of share this life on a, you know, hopefully on a bigger scale and hopefully, you know, our inspiring others and youngsters and whomever to, you know, be involved in agriculture and support agriculture. It's so great to see, you know, agriculture, farmers, ranchers being, uh, you know, getting their due, getting that spotlight, you know, in, in the media and having a chance to authentically tell your story, which I think is just fantastic. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if you, you know, you mentioned, you know, hoping that you know, getting some exposure inspires new generations. Do do you find that you have people maybe even reaching out to you saying, you know, how do I get started? Or, um, you know, I already have a a farm or a orchard or whatever, and I want to kind of take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. And I want to do agritourism, you know, Mm -hmm. what, what would your advice be to them? Or what kind of advice do you give? Um, I get it. I, I get emails and letters, um, Every day, every day about wanting uh, people wanting to get involved um, and how does one do it? And I mean, I, I'm a I believe it is something that um, is an amazing opportunity for people. And another way, especially because I think when ranchers, ran, when ranches and farms are in families for a long period of time, mm-hmm. you have to change with the times. You yeah. have to, I mean, sustainability is, it's a hot word. But it's a word that ranchers and farmers who have had them in our family for long periods of time really know. Um, And it's not a hot word. It's just a traditional word because it's something that we have had to do. I mean, you have to think about what is sustainable and what is a way to diversify your business, diversify how your land can be supportive um, to the community, to the greater community. Um, and so I'm, I'm a huge, even if it's as small as having two apple trees in your backyard and you want to make some applesauce and, you know, um, you know, and even if it's as small as doing that or calling your local food bank and being able to share some of those apples. I mean, there's a million different ways to be involved in your community when it comes to food. Um, and so um, I, I do, I, I am a big believer in it. I think it's a great opportunity. I mean, one of the things people do, a lot of people call and say, Oh, I want to, I want to buy your beef, um, around the country. And I say, you know what? I know for a fact there is somebody near you that is selling beef that, that is closer than me. Like I am, I am not your gal, gal, find the person who's at your farmer's market, you know, because I guarantee yeah. you there are people doing amazing things and working really hard that are right, that are that are close to you, that you can help support. 
that's wonderful that you're, you know, willing to say, listen, I'm going to take a step back, go and find your local person. You know, I really find that agriculture is such a such a community um, and one where people really try to support one another um, and lift one another up. And that's really what it sounds like. You know, you're, you're trying to, um, you know, uh, extend to others. Yeah. I mean, it's my, it's my hope. It really is my hope. And, um, and, you know, my favorite letters have been from, from kids who are, you know, uh, it's so sweet that they watch the show and they, um, you know, that they, they're cooking at home and, you know, just, just by cooking at home, um, in your, I mean, I, you know, even if you live in a big city, it doesn't matter that you're at home with family, um, maybe helping your, mom or your dad with, um, dinner to me, that's like, I think that, I think that the world can be really helped. Um, and I'm the last person to know what will help the world, (laughs) but I do feel like it's small, these small little changes, um, these small little things that we can do within our own small communities that hopefully if we all are able to do that, will hopefully help in a much bigger way. Absolutely. I like it. I, I am with you on this. But what do um, I know? And, I don't know. But hey, you know, I don't mean it, know. it seems like a big picture thing. But I, I do think I mean, because it, it does get overwhelming. But I think that we can we can all help the world. That's right. Well, listen, I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, every big picture is made up of a lot of little ones. And that's, you know, when when you yeah. are, you know, engaged in your own local community and, you know, just helping people one by one, you it has a huge impact. Um, and look, and you have a you have a massive reach. I mean, you have a show in Magnolia and you now have a new cookbook that has yes. come out just recently called The Ranch Table, which. Yep. I know has been inspired by and informed by your own personal experiences. So tell me a little bit about um, the ranch table and and what we can find in there. Oh, I am. I'm so excited about this book. Um, it really is um, kind of the introduction I feel of, and my hope for many books that um, is what it is. It's um, it's, it's a cookbook, <laughs> but it's a year on the ranch as well. And all the events and all the work parties and all the things that we do throughout an How entire fun. year on the ranch. Yeah. It's really fun. Um, it's recipes that are simple that you can make at home, that you can get these, um, ingredients anywhere. That was really important to me that these are ingredients that are not, you know, fancy in any way. These are things that anyone can make at home, anywhere they live. Um, but that, that hopefully will inspire people to have people together and get people and communities together. And, um, you know, I had a farmer call me and he said, I'm having a hard time getting people together or having people over. And I said, you know, call, call a local school. You know, see if, see if, um, a, say, see if a class would want, you know, third grade or fourth grade class would want to come Absolutely. and, and learn a little bit about agriculture, you know, um, getting people together. So, um, I love, this book is really, really fun. And, um, so it, it has stories in it. It has tons and tons of recipes and hopefully, um, will just be in everyone's kitchen. <laughs> Well, give me some examples of, of, you know, you said it's kind of like a whole year on the ranch. So give me yeah. kind of an example of maybe an event or a season mm-hmm. and a recipe that goes with it that we might be able to find. Yeah. Well, we start in the springtime, of course. Um, and on the ranch, there are calves. It's calving season. Um, it's also the time where we have a big spring event on the ranch where we have a lot of friends over and um, we do a big, um, just kind of like a big party and we do it every spring and it's one of uh, it's a really fun recipe which is full of there's there's um cookies and there's um great side dishes and great main dishes it's it's a it's a really fun one um and then it you know moving into summertime and um i do a there's a fun uh tailgate um meal that I do on the back of my pickup truck. And, you know, a lot of people come and, you know, eat a lot of times when we're moving cattle or, you know, a lot of times we're eating out in the middle of nowhere. And so, you know, you need to have a a good meal that can transfer easily. So we, I do that. Um, We move into the fall. We have a big, we have a huge garden on the ranch. It's kind of a kitchen garden, but um, just tons and tons of food. And I love to have a, you know, a lot of people 
it's a community garden. Everybody on the ranch can enjoy it. So um, it's, it's one of those places that we love to also enjoy and have meals in the garden um, kind of at the end of the year. There's a really yummy fried chicken recipe that I drizzle with honey, oh, yum. Um, which is one of my favorite, favorite recipes. Um, we have a lot of bees here on the ranch, so we do honey. And, um, yeah, so it's great. And then it moves into, you know, the holidays and the, you know, winter season. And we have a big bonfire every year around Christmas time. That sounds fantastic. And, yeah, it's really fun. So it's a, um, it's a really fun book. It really moves through the year. And there's just tons of chapters, tons of recipes, um, tons of meals that you can put together or mix and match um, and have a really fun time in the kitchen. I'm definitely about having a good time in the kitchen. I am not, you know, I am not a, a um, I, I, I didn't go to culinary school. I'm literally mm-hmm. just a rancher who loves to cook. And, um, and will so so many people. I, I mean, how it. many people in their home? How many people in their home kitchen have like, gone to culinary school? I mean, that's yeah. the thing. It's like I think that you know, there's when we get cookbooks, at least speaking for myself, from you know that have been crafted by someone who really is just you know an avid home cook. Yeah, I feel like there's a, a lot more accessibility there. People can really latch onto that and feel like, okay, yeah. I can do this. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you don't have you don't have to be fancy to have a have an incredible meal or have a wonderful get together and and right. host people at your home or bring neighbors neighbors together. Um, yeah. Would we be able to see any of this stuff um, on the show? Yes, some of the um, some of the recipes are from the show. Um, I did a lot of new recipes for this cookbook um, mm-hmm. just because I really wanted to just kind of keep <laughs> keep producing all of these things and keep bringing up all of these new um, recipes that I have that I'm dying to share. So a lot of them are new. Um, my grandfather um, left me. Um, when he passed away, he left me his index cards, his recipe index cards. Oh, I love um, it. I have all my grandma's oh handwritten my ones too. Goodness, you do. It's so, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, these handwritten recipes. And so I have some of those in there. And I just wanted to um, really share that. I, one of the things I love about it, and I'm so glad that you have that, that as well, um, I think that handing down recipes is such an important thing to do, it's such a gift. Um, and to be able to just share with people, um, with your family. I mean, you know, my grandfather, uh, my grandfather, I was, I was very, very close with my grandfather and I was very, very sad that he couldn't meet my boys. Um, Hmm. but I am able to cook the foods that he loved and being able to cook the foods that he loved and put them on our table. And in a way, my boys get to know him, um, by, you know, the foods that he loved. And I think that that is such a special thing that anyone can really do within their Absolutely. family. And Absolutely. I, I just love it. Me too. I mean, that that is just one of the most special things about cooking and about food. And those heirloom recipes really um, are what connect us and, and yes. you know, connect us to the past and, you know, make us a family, make us a community and um, definitely making me think about my, my grandmother uh, right now as we're having this conversation, because I couldn't agree with you more. It really is a way to, you know, pass on to the next generation that may have not had a chance to get to know them, which, you know, is so, so important. Right. Um, I, this is just, I love everything that you're doing. I would love to come out and visit. Uh, um, and, you know, people, and uh, if people want to come out and visit, you or find the cookbook or see the show, tell them where they can find you. Yes. So, um, the cookbook and my, my website is, um, the ranch table. Um, so all my information about our gatherings throughout, we've actually just posted our gatherings for 2024. Um, so we are very excited and, um, they are going quickly. So I would love for you all to come out. Um, and then the show ranch to table is on Magnolia network. Um, but you can stream it on Discovery Plus. You can just stream it on Max. Um, and then the book is sold where ed- wherever books are sold. So that's um, the ranch and it's called The Ranch Table. Well, we're going to be able to find you, Elizabeth Poet, wherever it sounds like. Uh, and, <laughs> I I, so. and I bet you have a lot on the horizon. So we're going to have to keep our eyes and ears open um, and to see what, what you have um, offering for us next. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I just, um, my heart goes out to the Midwest. 
Well, well, we and you are welcome here anytime as well. You're, we've adopted you um, and and your family, so you know thank consider you. yourself an honorary Midwesterner. And we thank you for sharing all of your exciting stories um, and all of your wisdom from the ranch, uh, Elizabeth. Thanks again for for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, Capri Cafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. You can learn more about the show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash Eat Your Heartland Out. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.